Hello, everyone. Thanks for being with us. My name is Matthew Kane. And I am Mike Knox. Welcome here. We're so glad you've joined us for today's episode as we try to get you thinking towards a theology of praise. Matthew, I'm really looking forward to the material you've prepared today because not only does my own experience show me that singing praises to the Lord, whether by the seaside or anywhere else, is an important part of my Christian life, but the Bible teaches me the same. Yeah, singing is very biblical. There are two whole books of the Bible that are actually collections of songs. The Song of Solomon, which is a love story and also pictures God's relationship with his people. And then the book of Psalms. The Hebrew title for that book means praises. And that one book makes up about 5% of the Bible on its own. But those aren't the only songs recorded in scripture. What got me thinking about this again recently was my daily reading through the book of Exodus and following Israel's redemption from Egypt and their salvation through the Red Sea. Chapter 15 of Exodus is almost entirely devoted to Israel singing the song of Moses by the seaside, that is, on the banks of the Red Sea. The first explicit mention in scripture, by the way, of a song. This is one of at least three songs penned by Moses in the record of inspired scripture. You'll find the others in Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 90, but we are at Exodus 15 today. Yeah, and a powerful song of praise it is. Let me read some of it for everyone listening. Exodus. Wait, Mike, why, why read it when you can sing it? This is your chance to make it big. A song like this is just crying out for someone like you to take it and become the next Lauren Daigle. Oh, well, I'm more of a karaoke guy myself, Matthew, so uh, I'll, uh, I'll maybe pass on that and uh, just read it for you. Is that all right? All right, go for it. Okay. It says, I will sing to the Lord. So I wouldn't want to sing in the present. I will sing in the future, it says. Here we go. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. Then the song concludes at verse 18 with, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Amen. Sounds like subjects well worth singing about the Lord, his victory, who he is to us, and his everlasting kingdom. Glorious themes. And notice how Mike's reading started with a determination to sing, I will sing to the Lord. And to our listeners, I want to encourage you to take that same mindset today. Be determined to sing to the Lord. Make it a part of your regular habit. God is worthy of your praise. Right. And as you pointed out, Matthew, the context of this song in Exodus 15 actually establishes one of the reasons why we should sing to the Lord, right? These people are singing because they are saved. Good. So let's lay out our admittedly brief and superficial approach to a theology of praise like this. Number one, why we should sing. Secondly, what we should sing. And thirdly, how we should sing. Firstly, why we should sing. Well, we should sing because it's biblical. We've said that. We've already mentioned Old Testament books devoted to it. And remarkably, this particular song of Exodus 15 seems to make another appearance in New Testament prophecy in Revelation 15. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. That is likely a reference to a future rendition of this song that ancient Israel sang on the banks of the Red Sea. And though King David died before Solomon had the temple constructed, he did make arrangements for singing to be a prominent part of worship in the temple. First Chronicles 15, the Lord Jesus sang. In fact, one of the events in the Lord's life that I would most like to have been present for is Matthew 26, 30. 
just after the Lord's Supper had been instituted the night before his crucifixion, it says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. It was customary for Jews to sing the Hallel Psalms at Passover, Psalm 113 to 118. And I think it would be a touching thing to hear my Savior sing hours before he lays down his life. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Bind the sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Wow, so touching. And Matthew, the New Testament obviously makes a case for singing to be a part of the corporate worship of the church too, correct? Clearly, one of the letters to a New Testament church, Colossians 3, 16, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And remember, 1 Corinthians chapters 11 to 14 are in the context of the gathered church. And in chapter 14, verse 15, I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Verse 26, when you come together, each one has a hymn, etc. So singing together was part of the early church's practice. It is a fantastically precious physical expression of our shared joy in Christ. Singing together is a wonderful way to express our shared joy in Christ. Martin Luther said, at home in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart. I think we have sometimes underestimated the potential value of hearty corporate worship in song. David Gunderson, commenting on why people should return to church after COVID, points out these four weighty things about singing together. Listen up. Singing together glorifies God by re-enthroning him in the hearts of his people. Singing together brands our minds with truth and warms our hearts with grace. Singing together symbolizes our unity as we harmonize over the gospel. Singing together expresses our emotions to God. I feel like our listeners should hit that little button on your screen that sends the podcast back 30 seconds to take that in again. Actually, don't do that. You might be driving while you're listening to this. We want to keep this entirely hands-free. Or maybe you're out for your daily walk, but you can't walk and press buttons at the same time. So let me give you David Gunderson's four points again. Singing together glorifies God by re-enthroning him in the hearts of his people. Singing together brands our minds with truth and warms our hearts with grace. Singing together symbolizes our unity as we harmonize over the gospel and singing together expresses our emotions to God. Be determined to sing to the Lord. Yes, and sing together as uh, that quote repeats so often, Matthew. We're, we're saying that we should sing together as a church. But I also expect that some of our listeners feel that they do their best singing in the shower or singing along with music in their cars. Hey, the Lord is over all. His authority knows no bounds. So wherever you want to sing praise to the Lord, you are not bringing his name where it doesn't already belong. In fact, just to offer a very practical reminder here on the Practicology podcast, remember how powerful song and music are. They can touch and stir our emotions in ways that words alone do not. And there's biblical precedent for that. David soothed Saul's troubled spirit by playing his lyre or his harp for him. So when you're feeling down or stressed, listen to good Christian music. Sing along with it. My wife Esther finds it so helpful when she's feeling a little burdened or rushed or stressed to put on some music, maybe while she's racing around the kitchen. It calms her soul, and I've learned from her. So when I'm getting breakfast ready in the mornings, I will often put on my MKC Mornings playlist, allow my spirit to be lifted with a song to the Lord, 
and the children come out of their bedrooms to the sounds of a song to the Lord. And through much of the pandemic, we weren't singing indoors with our local church, so we would usually sing as a family in the van on the way. It's hard, maybe not impossible, but it's hard to stay cranky, we have learned, when you are trying to joyfully sing good songs unto the Lord. In fact, singing on the way to meeting is great no matter uh, no matter what, because that way your singing voice is ready when the congregational singing starts for real. Otherwise, you know, your voice is a bit cracky and squeaky when you start to sing. But if you've already been singing, you are raring to go. Yeah, there's some profound practical theology of praise right there, everyone. Make sure your vocal cords are already loosened up by the time church starts. Okay, Matthew, you've started telling us why we should sing. Reason number one is that it is biblical. You've sort of drifted into a second reason too. It is powerful and lifts our spirits or calms our soul. What else do you have? Well, I'd come back to what you mentioned a couple of minutes ago and where we were at the beginning with the context of Exodus 15. A people redeemed and saved by the Lord should sing praise to the Lord. Redemption is another reason why we should sing. Redemption has set us free from the slavery to self-centered sin, and it has loosed our tongues to praise the Lord. We have called this episode Singing by the Seaside, but Israel certainly wasn't singing on one of the seasides of Exodus 14. They were filled with fear on the one side of the sea. But now having been baptized unto Moses in the Red Sea and having been saved from the power of Egypt, there was now worship in song. And in the midst of that song, we get a key scripture for the book of Exodus, verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them by your strength to your holy dwelling. In this dispensation, we could sing those same words, but we may also add, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the lamb, redeemed and so happy in Jesus, his child and forever I am. All Israel was singing by the seaside because they had all been saved. And if you have been saved by the Lord, then you have great reason to sing to the Lord. It's not the quality of your singing voice that qualifies you, but it is what the Lord has done for you. I mean, you could make a good, a good case that the Exodus is the most important event of the Old Testament. And what did this people do following their redemption? They sang. Now we who live on the other side of the ultimate event of scripture, the cross, which Israel's Passover and redemption foreshadowed, what should we do? We should sing. Because the Lord has put a new song in our mouths, a song of praise to our God, Psalm 40. Listen to my New Brunswick friends, Ken and Nancy Biddington and their family singing. Find them doing some Facebook live sessions. Sing along with them. We can't all sing like them, that's for sure. But we can share in their joy. They tell me instead of cookies or cake or ice cream for dessert after their dinner, they sing for dessert. Not, not to get dessert, but as their dessert. And they offer kindly to share their dessert with us. Hmm. So let me get this straight. We should sing because it is biblical, because it's a blessing to our souls, because we have been redeemed, and then unexpectedly, because it's healthier than eating ice cream. Yeah, and one more. Our songs are didactic. We teach truth in our singing. This could be implied in the text we cited earlier, Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. So it depends a little bit on how you punctuate the text. But again, remember the Psalms are a collection of songs that are meant to teach us. And I expect everyone who is listening today has proven that words stick in our heads better when they are put to song. 
Unfortunately for many of us, this includes lyrics we wish weren't still stuck in our heads, but they've remained there because the corresponding music helped to fix them in our minds. But we've also proven the blessing of that same process many times over too. It is the reason many of us can quickly turn to the correct place in our Bibles when the preacher announces his passage. It's because we've learned the books of the Bible by song. Sometimes we still need to sing that song in our heads and in meeting to find the book. And while the most of us do not remember a vast amount of poetry without song, we can quote line after line after line of multitudinous stanzas when we hear it, just a little bit of the tune. So this is why singing is also so valuable in youth evangelism. So many times we have had parents mention to us how their children are still singing the songs that they had learned. And that thrills me to know the gospel is being proclaimed in these hearts and homes, even by unredeemed lips and they are doing it because of song. Which is why the songs that we sing are so important. Uh, they contribute to framing our thoughts about God. So I think I'm leading you into your second point, Matthew, and that is a focus on what we sing. Thank you. What should we sing? Simplistically put, I know, but we should sing good songs. Let me come back again to the subject of songs and youth outreach. Think about the songs you're teaching. I know you want a fun and catchy tune for the kids, but there are loads of good options. So you don't need to resort to telling them that you're in right, out right, up right, down right, happy all the time. The song should teach the gospel or some scripture truth or truth about God, or maybe it could teach a Bible story or a verse of scripture itself. There are many good options. In his commentary on Exodus 15, Tony Merida says, Songs are portable theology. That's good. I mean, all theology should be portable and we should be putting it into practice. But the point is song makes it easier to remember. So because of that, I would just say, make sure what you are transporting is good theology. And when you say that, Matthew, I think about this song here in Exodus 15. It is obviously good theology. I mean, it's in scripture, but the lyrics are very theocentric, very God-centric. Yeah, it's teaching us important things about God. It gives us the name of God, Yahweh, the Lord, the self-existent and self-sufficient God. Verse two, he is a personal God, my strength and song. He is my salvation. Hey, to any of our listeners who don't personally know the Lord, you who cannot say you have been redeemed and saved. This song is teaching us that the mighty God is knowable and personable. The New Testament makes it clear that you come to know him through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his son. And in that same verse, Israel says, he is my father's God, maybe a reference to Abraham and, and likely emphasizing that God is a covenant keeping God. Amen. Then in verse three, he is a divine warrior. God will fight for his people and will triumph over his enemies. At the end of the song, verse 18, the truth that so much of the scripture is building towards, God has an everlasting kingdom. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And I shouldn't have skipped verse 11. I love that text. The song is teaching us God is unique. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? That's just a sample of what this song teaches us about God. But Mike, Maybe you need to write some music for this song because this is rich theology. I'll get right on that, Matthew. Um, but I just want to add one thing, and that is down in verse 26, uh, the Lord now speaks and says, I am the Lord, your healer. And I, I love 
how the chapter starts with him as a divine warrior, but it ends with him as the divine healer. And uh, just a beautiful combination in our God. But, But you've spoken about the value of our singing together and the importance of good theology in our songs. So, Matthew, what is one of your favorite hymns to sing when you gather with your local church? I love the depth of lyrics in Josiah Conder's hymn, Thou Art the Everlasting Word, true image of the infinite whose essence is concealed, brightness of uncreated light, the heart of God revealed. I love Augustus Toplady's A Debtor to Mercy Alone. My name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. What about you, Mike? What are your favorites? One that is my favorite would be, Look ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now. From the fight return victorious. Every knee to him shall bow. Crown him, crown him. Crowns become the victor's brow. So we've been focusing on lyrics in this part, Matthew. If we are talking about what we sing as a gathered church, are the tunes significant in this discussion too? Or am I just stirring up controversy in our podcast with that question? Yeah, you might be, but knowing you as I do, that doesn't shock me. But your question is a good one. Do the tunes matter? Yes, for two reasons. One, music itself, apart from the lyrics, does have some didactic influence. Matt Ferris, the author of the Gentleman Theologian blog, has a few interesting posts on this issue that he published back in April of 2021. He points out, music has a culture and it gives character to the words, which is one reason why there is sometimes generational conflict in this area. But since culture also changes and cultural linkage is not perceived the same by everyone, I would say each generation does need to respect the songs and tunes that we are using are going to change over time and we should incorporate new songs into our worship and we should not overlook and discard the strength of songs that have stuck with the church for generation after generation proving their value to christian worship so on the one hand there is the risk of chronological snobbery that says the new is automatically better no We have centuries of Christian song behind us that we would be stupid to cast aside. On the other hand, it is also unreasonable, and I would say ludicrous, to think that the last good song of praise has already been written. If the church adopted that attitude in the 16th century, we wouldn't have gotten the rich hymns of Isaac Watts and Charles Wesley. If we stopped after the 19th century, we would be missing out on Fanny Crosby's massive contribution to Christian hymnody. And if we said nothing should be added beyond the last generation, we would be poorer for not possessing in Christ alone and how deep the Father's love for us. And with new songs will come new tunes, new music. Not every tune is going to be appropriate. Tunes can invoke certain responses, but not every new tune is inappropriate either. A second reason why tunes matter is that They need to be easily sung in our corporate setting without professionally trained voices. Many of us are singing without a musical accompaniment. And a lot of the Christian songs that people enjoy singing in their car along with the professional artist, well, you just wouldn't sound as good if I quieted the professional accompaniment. Let me put it that way. People who have some experience starting and leading hymns, whether on a Sunday morning or with a group of kids, they will often have a better sense of how singable something is. If you've never led the singing, you're 
quite possibly not the best judge of that. You, you may be. You may be able to give us some good insight. We appreciate that. But some songs may be mostly singable, but maybe you just need to cut out a bridge where the professional artists go bonkers on the electric guitar. But hey, here's a few examples. City of Lights, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me is very singable. Psalm 139 by New Scottish Hymns. Linda Shazo's Ancient Words. Uh, His Mercy is More by Matt Papa and Matt Boswell. Those are all very singable, as are many others. Thanks, Matthew. Some good things to keep in mind there. You've told us now why we should sing, what we should sing, and you also want us to talk about how we should sing. Are you talking about tempo, volume, singing in three-part harmony, or what's on your mind with this last point? Well, if you can harmonize, absolutely, go ahead. We are not putting on a performance, but if we're going to sing, there is nothing wrong with making it sound beautiful in our ears as well. But when I mentioned I want to think about how we sing, I had one particular thing in mind. Let me touch on it briefly as we need to wrap this up. Sing like you mean it. That's how we should sing. We should sing like we mean it. Ephesians 5, 19, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Colossians 3, 16, again, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Sing from your hearts. Hearty, corporate singing can be a wonderful witness to the gospel and the joy of the Lord. We aren't really helping anyone when we're like, I don't know. Not debtors in mercy alone. No. Sing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Thanks, Matthew. I've really enjoyed the thoughts you've brought to us. And thanks for reminding us of the importance of song and Christian worship and the value of singing together, whether it is by the seaside or, or anywhere else. We're all Christians. All of us are singing on redemption ground. Matthew, I'm a little hung up by you taking away I'm in, so, I'm in right, outright, upright, downright happy all the time. I'm, I'm a little hung up by that, but I'm still going to be happy. And, uh, and I want to welcome those of you listening to uh, join the chorus on social media. We have accounts on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And maybe let Matthew know some feedback on, on what are your thoughts. He's maybe stirred up a controversy or two. We'd be interested in sharing your thoughts, especially on in right, out right, up right, down right, happy all the time. Thanks, Matthew, for these great thoughts. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We'll see you next week, Lord willing. Mike, I don't mind you being happy all the time. It's you being in right, out right, up right, down right that concerns me. But uh, <laughs> yeah. no worries. Again, everybody, thanks for being with us. Have a great day.